This is Postico Chronicles, and I'm your host, Matt Falk. Hello, listeners. Thanks for tuning in again. Uh, I am so, so excited to uh, introduce to you our guest today. Uh, on our show, we have interviewed uh, CEOs, uh, politicians, actors, leaders, innovators, you know, anyone who has accomplished or all of our guests have accomplished so much and done so much good in communities but today's a little bit different um usually i'm pretty uh good at keeping my cool pretty uh (laughs) but i think today i'm like freaking out a little bit uh we have a pretty pretty phenomenal guest today our guest today is uh dr george elliott clark um thank you for coming in thank you matthew yeah uh for those who do not know of um our guest today um he is one of the most prolific Canadian poets and playwrights. Um, the Canadian poets and playwrights. He is most known for his chronicles and explorations of the history of Black Canadian communities of Nova Scotia, New Brunswick. As well, he coined the term Africadia, and among his many accomplishments, he was the seventh Canadian Parliamentary Poet Laureate. He was appointed the Governor General's Award for Poetry, the Order of Nova Scotia. Uh, and the Office of the Order of Canada in 2008, right? Yeah. Right. Okay. <laughs> it was a mouthful. And among many, many other things, thank you so much for joining us. It's great. It's a pleasure for me to be here, Matthew. Yeah. Um, would you, is there anything else you would like to add for like a summary of yourself or like an introduction that I missed? Oh, no. I mean, you, I mean, it's been pretty comprehensive, everything you've had to say. I, I would just uh, say that uh, I'm, I'm happy to be able to put all these uh, accomplishments on my CV and I always want more and, it's, and I hope I can achieve more. But at the same time, as I say that, I think it's really important to recognize that no matter what any of us achieves, it's always because of the contributions of others. And, and sometimes folks who may be surprising uh, in some way, shape, or form, but it's because of the fact that they are themselves unusual uh, and achievers in some way, shape, or form that they're able to have uh, a formative impact on others. And so I always like to think about, uh, of course, my parents, um, but uh, and then neighborhood people in Halifax, Nova Scotia, where I grew up in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, who who basically took me under their wing when I was 18, 19, becoming a young man and a, and a young writer and giving me a real education, especially in terms of history and politics, which I don't feel most of us actually ever have the advantage of experiencing. And I know that we can read about history and we can read about political science and universities such as St. Mike's, St. Mike's College at this great institution, <laughs> University of Toronto. Uh, but even even then, I think it sometimes depends partly on the professors you might have or teachers you might have as to what kind of vantage point you might end up having on historical events and, and political realities. So uh, building on that, um, your time in Nova Scotia, have you lived there your whole, like most of you know, your formative years? Or can you talk about how that affected who you are today growing up in Nova Scotia? Uh, where were you born in Nova Scotia? Uh, Windsor, Nova Scotia. Okay. Uh, there are five Windsors in Canada, but I <laughs> yeah. won't take up, waste our time going through all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, the most famous one is right here in Ontario. But but uh, you ask a great question, Matthew. And it's a difficult question because it's good and bad mixed in. I'm, I'm black. I'm racialized black. I look black. Um, I'm a brown-skinned black man. And as a brown-skinned black man, 
what is often not recognized is the fact I'm also part uh, Indigenous. I'm Afro-Métis. I am a card-carrying member of the Eastern Woodland Métis Nation, Nova Scotia. So I identify uh, under Section 35 of the Constitution, Charter Rights and Freedoms, as a person of Indigenous heritage. Uh, that's not uh, the most primary aspect of, of my being in terms of my writing and, and uh, activism and so on. But I, I increasingly like to acknowledge that reality in my life and to have others acknowledge it as well um, because it's part of who I am. And I'm still answering your great question. So what I mean about it being good and bad. Um, I'm a proud Nova Scotian. I still own land there, three quarters of an acre uh, near my home community of Three Mile Plains. And, and I grew up there, was educated there uh, through uh, the primary and secondary school systems. I left when I was 19 to go to the University of Waterloo, uh, where I started my, where I did my under, undergraduate degree and went back to Nova Scotia in the mid-1980s when I was 25 only to leave again uh, when I was 27. I haven't really been back there since to live since 1987 uh, when I left to go to work for uh, uh, Howard uh, McCurdy uh, in Ottawa as a member of parliament, uh, Canada's second black member of parliament. I ended up uh, having a privilege working for him. I'm still answering a great question, good and bad. Um, the good of it all is that I love the Nova Scotian landscape. Uh, I love the fact that people are, can be very uh, friendly and plain-spoken and down-to-earth. I like uh, the bagpipe music. Uh, I like the uh, Acadian fiddle music. I like uh, country and western. Um, I, I like uh, the uh, fused Mi'kmaq, Cherokee, uh, uh, Black American, and uh, in Cape Breton, West Indian. Uh, uh, sides of of uh, of uh, our culture, uh, and and uh, and I like the the whole idea of the ocean and the sea and the maritimes and seaweed and dulce and and all that and mm -hmm. and and I do miss it. Uh, I miss it greatly. And on the other hand, now it comes uh, the bad side, which is the fact that. Uh, it's an old culture in terms of Canadian cults, Canadian settler cultures. It's a relatively old culture, not as old as Newfoundland, but definitely older than than the cultures that base themselves in the West, uh, in the prairies, and, and so on. Um, and it's a culture that was founded in slavery. A lot of people don't want to recognize that or, or choose not to notice it, but it's a fact. And uh, the five Eastern Canadian provinces were all uh, all operated with slave economies, but especially what is now Quebec and also Nova Scotia. Quebec, when it was New France, had the greatest number of slaves in what is now Canada. Uh, but Nova Scotia, being smaller, of course, than, than Quebec and being more, concentr more concentrated in area, um, uh, slavery in Nova Scotia had a bigger impact on the culture and the consciousness and psychology of the people. That's partly because of the fact that the, that the slaveholders uh, came in to Nova Scotia primarily uh, in 1760, bringing slaves with them, African-American slaves from uh, the U.S. South as well as from New England. Uh, before the American Revolution, most of the colonies, British colonies, were slaveholding. Uh, and and uh, so that included uh, uh, states that are now New England states. Many of them were also slaveholding, including Massachusetts and New York State, for that matter. Um and and uh, 
so the American settlers who came, uh, Yankee settlers, not yet American because the, the country had not yet been born, but in any event, uh, they had the ideals of America and they had the attitudes of America when they settled in Nova Scotia in 1760, and that included uh, pro-slavery, that included uh, anti-black racism, anti-indigenous racism, anti-francophone racism, anti-catholic racism, and so on and so forth. And all of these became, all of these isms became the ground, the base uh, for what later developed into Nova Scotian culture, where, um, uh, sir, where uh, astonishingly, it's Scottishness that is really celebrated in terms of especially tourism, mm -hmm. the land of the Gales, uh, Gaelic is spoken in Nova Scotia, the largest concentration of Gaelic speakers outside of Scotland, Nova well, Scotia. I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but this is all part of the Nova Scotian tourism package, tourism <laughs> experience. Mm -hmm. And I identify with all that. As again, again, I like the bagpipes, and, and uh, Scots have been instrumental in building, our folks of Scottish descent have been instrumental in building up Nova Scotian culture and so on, and it deserves to be celebrated. But because we celebrate that culture so much, we, we downplay the fact that Nova Scotia really is an American colony. It was mm -hmm. really, in a sense, founded in terms of settler culture founded by Americans, not by Scots, but by Americans. And those Americans believed in slavery and they believed in racism. And so those attitudes are what I grew up with. So that's the bad part of being Nova Scotian. So <laughs> <laughs> that was a great kind of summary. No, I really appreciate that. Um, for those who have never heard of the term for Africadian, could you um, explain what that means? Well, I developed this term uh, almost 30 years ago uh, to try to distinguish uh, the historical African Nova Scotian community, which again dates back to as far as 1760. And, and if you want to claim Matthew de Costa, who arrived in Canada in 1605, who became the first black that we know of in, in recorded history mm -hmm. uh, to be in what is now Canada, then the roots of African Nova Scotia go back to 1605. That's uh, uh, 400 years plus mm -hmm. that kind of history that kind of culture and i don't mind just taking it back to 1760 it's okay i don't mind we can do that too um so let's say 300 uh 200 plus years 250 years mm -hmm. uh if we want to talk about 1760 270 years we want to talk about 1760 260 years to get my math right <laughs> we want to talk about 1760 uh, so that means 13 generations, if we just want to talk about 1760. So that's 13 generations of, of, um, of black people uh, with mainly African-American roots uh, who are also partially mixed with indigenous peoples, not just Mi'kmaq, the people truly indigenous to Nova Scotia, but also Cherokee who were involved in the War of 1812 on the side of the British, but many of whom got resettled at the end of the War of 1812 with uh, African-Americans in uh, what is now called Nova Scotia. Uh, and, and, uh, and so therefore, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a different community. It's not the same as communities that developed uh, through the Underground Railroad in Ontario uh, when it was Upper Canada and Canada West. Uh, or for that matter, the historical black population in, in uh, Quebec uh, and, and, uh, and, and other black settlements on the prairies later, which date back to the early 20th century and then in BC, which is the mid uh, 19th century. 
uh, and and certainly this community is not the same as uh, uh, new uh, African Canadian communities, immigrant communities, um, uh, many uh, West Indian in origin, in origin uh, and and a little bit later African in origin, uh, who began to arrive in numbers in Canada in the 1960s and and for the Africans 1970s and for the uh, East Africans uh, really even later than that 1980s and I'm thinking of the Somalians and Eritreans and Ethiopians and so forth um, and so while we all have our Africanness in common mm -hmm. and we all should be proud of that and we and I do believe that we have similar tastes in music and oratory and dance similar not the same but similar uh, and similar attitudes uh, ar around uh, culture and family and so on it doesn't change the fact that the centuries of transplantation from Africa via slavery into the so-called New World, onto Turtle Island, and into the Caribbean, and into South America, have have made differences amongst our various cultures. So, again, long answer to your great question. <laughs> I invented Africadia to demarcate uh, folks of African ancestry uh, who find themselves in the Maritimes of Canada uh, from other Black communities and uh however they might be defined and that's is not to say that we are better than because we're not and in fact in some ways we may be considered correctly inferior to some other uh, black cultures in terms of our dynamism in terms of our creativity and so on but we do have some characteristics that set us apart and which are worth thinking about and worth preserving Primarily, the first characteristic that has to be kept in mind is the fact that we were an isolated North Atlantic uh, black uh, people or peoples um, and stranded from the African-American home, certainly pretty much isolated from the Caribbean. Uh, and we had to fend for ourselves as an extreme minority in a white supremacist ex-slaveholding, uh, uh, pro-segregationist, and simply racist environment without any assistance from anybody mm -hmm. else in the African diaspora yeah. for at least a century and a half, if not two centuries. We were on our own. Yeah. And despite the fact that we were such a small minority, we managed to survive, and we managed to create what I consider to be a vibrant black culture uh, with our own forms of music, our own forms of speech, which in fact are studied, African Nova Scotia vernacular English, or I'll call it Africadian English, uh, is a different form of, of Black American English for the most part, uh, and uh, and still causes me stop, to be stopped at the border, no matter what my passport says, uh, under suspicion that I'm, I'm somehow trying to slip into the country or trying to pass as a Canadian because I apparently don't speak English the way that Canadians Canadians are supposed to speak it, which is okay. I just remind everybody it's a Nova Scotian accent, maybe not the Nova Scotian accent you're used to, but it is a Nova Scotian accent, and and uh, and more indigenous to Canada. I use the word indigenous deliberately than many other accents that people like to think of as being Canadian. 
uh, when they are in fact British. But in any event, all that to one side. Um, uh, and the other thing that makes us uh, uh, different, which I wanted to recognize in, in inventing that word, is the fact that we own land, mm -hmm. have owned land historically, keeping in mind that all of the land in Canada, as far as I'm concerned, I don't care about treaties, all of the land in Canada, in my opinion, uh, was essentially, uh, 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 let me pronounce it the Jamaican way, teefed, teefed, as in thiefed, teefed mm -hmm. away from indigenous peoples. Uh, and again, I know there were treaties and I know that there were agreements and so forth, but for the most part, they were not honored uh, by the settler conquistador cultures. They were not. Uh, we live with them today. Uh, they are enshrined in the Constitution uh, and, and so forth. So I know that this is a fact of history. Uh, but I recognize that fact while at the same time I say that some of that teefed land, some of that stolen land, some of that ripped off land ended up being given to folks of African heritage who arrived in, who arrived in colonial Nova Scotia as refugees from slavery, as fugitives from slavery, uh, as escapees from slavery, and also simply as slaves. Uh, and who, once they were released from slavery, uh, decided to stay on in the only home that they knew, uh, which was Nova Scotia. And as a result of staying there or migrating there, were given land that was not the states to give, but they gave it anyway. And it was the worst land. I got to make that point. It was the worst land. It was stony land. It was swampy land. That land, that bad land, was given deliberately by colonial government uh, policy to folks of African descent for two reasons. The first reason, the major reason, was economic. You know, it was important that black would-be settlers be given the worst possible land so that they could not become economically self-sufficient and therefore a threat to the white landed gentry, aristocratic, uh, capitalist interests. Uh, it was important from the viewpoint of the government of Nova Scotia that if black people are going to be in Nova Scotia, that they form a lumpen proletariat. I use the Marxian term with relish because that's exactly what the government intended uh, through segregation, through denying uh, proper access to education, um, uh, to essentially render African Nova Scotians, Africadians, a tertiary, um, uh, unskilled, uneducated uh, pool of labor to be used to suppress the wages of white workers and as a threat against white workers and as a way to ensure that they could never be anything more than white people's servants uh, and carrying out white people's garbage and cleaning up white people's mess uh, mm -hmm. and so forth, understand that we were an inferior people. And so our, our, the land that we were given was deliberately constructed to prevent any kind of economic takeoff. And that was the situation of 200 years. And again, a lot, along with the uh, poor access to education, uh, police harassment, uh, the injustice system, uh, uh, all of these factors work together um, with state supervision and state sponsorship to ensure that we would remain an oppressed minority, easily exploitable uh, for our raw labor uh, skills. But the second reason why we were given, or our ancestors were given bad land and poor land was to encourage us to leave. Mm 
mm-hmm. because the government of Nova Scotia did not want uh, uh, former slaves and and uh, former slaves, escaped slaves, etc., to remain in Nova Scotia, um, uh, which they consider to be a a excuse the expression a white man's country mm-hmm. or white man's colony. Uh, and that, but again, if we were going to be there, then we would have to accept our position as as uh, second best, third best. Um, and as figures of, of fun, buffoonery, and for that matter, uh, intimidation, uh, figures of intimidation, that is to say, who deserve to be intimidated and harassed and oppressed. None of this began to change because things have not changed completely. All of this only began to change in the 1960s when we finally had arriving in, in, in Nova Scotia a, a, an, a generation well enough educated to begin to protest and fight back and answer back and demand more uh, from our own government. this kind of uh, African-Canadian history is still gaining, you know, awareness. People are still learning about it. Like, I mean, me personally, I'm from Alberta. Like, it's not in the education system at all. It's not really being taught. Um, what would you say is the best way to battle, I guess, the erasure of uh, African-Canadian history? Matthew, that's a great question once again. And, and I think uh, folks from Alberta, uh, uh, need to know everything about Albertan history, uh, black history, of course, uh, mm-hmm. since that's our subject right now. Uh, but history in general, and I want to exp- expand this to everybody who may be listening to the program. Look, nothing in our society is the way it is by accident. Nothing. Everything has been constructed over generations according to plan. Uh, yes, there have been accidents. There have been historical uh, incidents that have uh, caused our society to move in different ways, different times, sometimes very progressively. And, and I'm thankful for that. But at the same time, the general structure of the society was set in place a long time ago. We can just look back to 1867. We don't have to go back any further than that. But the fact that we developed a constitution that said that we're going to have a government that's going to be on the same principle as the government of the uh, United Kingdom, or Great Britain as it was then called, uh, that we were going to maintain a monarchy, uh, that we were going to have school systems that were going to be operate, operated on the basis of Catholic versus Protestant, that we were going to have uh, uh, a special and, uh, again, repressive relationship with indigenous people. That's all spelled out in the 1867 Constitution, the BNA Act, uh, Section 91, uh, in terms of the, the, the division of powers between the uh, federal government and the provinces. 
uh, as well as the uh, uh, peace, order, and good government clause in the in the opening uh, 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 section of uh, of again section ninety one, opening paragraph section ninety one, uh, the fact that the preamble to the Constitution eighteen sixty seven says that Britain is bringing together the Canadian colonies to form uh, the province of uh, or to form the Dominion of Canada, also states it's being done to promote. This is really crucial, Matthew. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Most Canadians don't know this. I know they're going to fall over off their seats. They're going to fall down on the floor and writhe with discomfort with what I'm about to say. But it's all, it's all there. The preamble to the Constitution of 1867 says that the reason why Confederation is taking place is to promote the interests of the British Empire. Mm -hmm. Promote the interests of the British Empire. So how does that exactly help African Nova Scotians, Africadians, Afro-Métis. How does promoting the interests of the British Empire help indigenous people? How does promoting the interests of the British Empire help Francophones? How does promoting the interests of the British Empire help folks whose uh, religion is not Christianity and whose denominations are not Protestant or Catholic? Uh, in, other in other words, it's a long way of saying that until we got the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, 1982. And in fact, I got to say this, the Charter makes war on the DNA Act. Mm -hmm. Every lawyer knows this. Every judge knows this. Everybody's sitting up on the Supreme Court, the nine Supremes, Canadian Supremes, they all know this. The Charter is an act of war. Thank you, Pierre Trudeau. The Charter is an act of war against the DNA Act, right? Um, because it overturns that whole uh, Anglo-centric, Christocentric uh, uh, dimension uh, of the Constitution, but it does not overturn the hierarchical arrangement of ethnicities, uh, and and uh, for that matter, in a de facto sense, uh, religions, um, and and uh, uh, and also further enshrines. Uh, the uh, bilingual fact, which I also heartily support, don't anybody get me wrong, but at the same time that that's true, and while the Charter recognizes multiculturalism, does not necessarily make enough room for so-called third languages, and therefore those cultures and those peoples to flourish equally uh, with uh, communities that are anchored in English or French in the society. But it doesn't change the fact that the 82 Constitution was a huge step forward. And I'm again, again taking a long time to answer your question. What That's I'm trying okay. to get That's at okay. here <laughs> is the importance of us knowing our history. Mm -hmm. Everybody in the country should know that we live in a state that was erected on the dreams of, I don't know, a couple dozen couple dozen white guys in top hats uh, yeah. uh, uh, dreaming about maintaining the British Empire. Mm -hmm. And and that, you know, it's about high time that we let Britain get on with being Britain without us having to worry about it. And that also means uh, that for generations uh, now and to come, uh, you might want to revisit the whole question of whose monarchy we, we should have, whose monarchy we should support. Um, and if you're going to have a monarchy, why not have a Canadian monarchy? There are ways to do that. Um, other states have done it. We can do it too. But we don't even think about these questions because most of us, I'm ashamed to say it, most of us, even fine graduates of the University of Toronto are ignorant of our own basic history. So this is African Heritage Month right now as we're speaking. It still is February 2019. Um, 
And I wish that instead of having February as African Heritage Month, if we really knew our history, black people uh, should have chosen August because August was the month when emancipation took place in the British Empire, August 1, 1834. Uh, and so August has a lot more bearing on African-Canadian history and African history than does February. And now somebody out there in the audience may be asking, so why do we have February as Black History Month, mm -hmm. the coldest, darkest month of the year? Why? Shortest month of the year. Why February? All <laughs> yeah. because we're all ignorant of our history. Uh, the reason why it's February is because Carter G. Woodson, way back in the 1920s, a century ago, 100 years ago, uh, decided that there should be Negro History Week in the United States to shine a spotlight on black achievement and, and so on. But he realized that he was going to get any traction for this idea. Carter G. Woodson realized that to get traction, that to get traction for his idea, he was going to have to include an icon who would also be celebrated by white Americans. So he chose a week in February as Negro History Week because in that week he could include Abraham Lincoln, white American, and the great emancipator, uh, the president who ended slavery through civil war, as well as the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, uh, and and uh, his birthday is February 12th. Uh, the other great American, African-American, that Carter G. Woodson wanted to celebrate was Frederick Douglass, uh, who's the great tribune, the great orator, the great abolitionist, fiery writer, uh, uh, tribune of the people, uh, speaker, denouncer of hypocrisy of all sorts, uh, and also was a strong defender of, of women's rights. Uh, he was also a male suffragette. Uh, uh, because he saw uh, clearly, as as many white women did, uh, and black women, of course, as well, the the essential uh, 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 joint nature of the struggle to get rid of slavery and the struggle to emancipate women, to bring women the right to vote. Both of these issues grew in tandem together. As white women championed uh, abolition of slavery, they also realized that they were no more than chattel, no more than slaves themselves uh, 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 in terms of uh, legal uh, uh, status uh, and, of course, voting rights. Uh, and so uh, uh, it was a no-brainer. And people like Sojourner Truth, African-American uh, women's rights campaigner abolitionists as well, made this uh, alliance very clear. And it's not an alliance that should never be forgotten. And in fact, let me just say for the record that the uh, Black Lives Matter movement and the Me Too, hashtag Me Too movement, uh, along with uh, Idle No More, uh, are movements mm -hmm. that should uh, uh, coalesce and combine and join forces moving forward uh, because all of these various struggles have much in common. The struggles are also distinct and different and separate. But at the same time, they're also linked. And the more those linkages can be made, the more powerful those movements can become. Um, so uh, coming back to Carter G. Woodson and African Heritage Month being in February, his desire to link the birthdays of Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln uh, meant that uh, he had to choose a week in February. And that eventually evolved into Black History Month being in February in the United States, which then uh, crossed the border into Canada in the 1970s without anybody in Canada choosing to understand exactly why it is that February 
is now our month for celebrating Black history when it ought to be August. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. <laughs> um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Through this, I think, short half hour, I've learned a lot already. You're welcome to come on anytime you want. Um, I think I love your rants. I love... <laughs> I love uh, I love how we circle back, <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming, and uh, uh, it's a pleasure to have you, Matthew. I'll just say one last thing. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for for putting up with my rants. <laughs> um, I think that that uh, the overstatement of of some ideas is uh, a reflection of my desire to push us all mm-hmm. to master our histories, plural. You cannot know how to go forward to make any kind of productive change, especially change that will last, if you do not know thy history thoroughly to be able to avoid being bamboozled, fooled, tricked, Civics 101. <laughs> do you ever have any students who, because you teach classes, right? Yes. At U of T, do you have any, ever have any students who like really geek out? <laughs> like, like, who just totally fangirl, fanboy like you, like. Oh my golly. Um, every now and then, you know, it's nice. It's it's nice. I, I appreciate it. I truly do. I try not to let it influence my working. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was my conversation with Dr. Clark. Hopefully we will have him on the show again soon. Be sure to check out his most recent book. These are the words that he co-wrote with John B. Lee. There will be a link to it in the show notes and also links to his other works. Post the Code Chronicles is hosted and produced by me, Matt Falk. Our staff includes Alice Coombs, Rostislav Soroka, and Kasun Melegadera. Our main theme song is called Last Energy for Today by Loyalty Freak Music, and there are other music credits on our website. If you like what you heard, give us a rating, share us, follow us on social media. We really appreciate all of the support in any way that you provide. Um, And thank you so much for listening. We will see you soon.